Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, where we discuss all aspects of medical device and pharmaceutical regulatory and clinical strategy from bench to bedside. This is part two of our two-part series on site selection and evaluation. Julie Scheide and Linda Peterson continue their discussion on the topic. And in this episode, Julie and Linda share recommendations and actionable tips for site identification, building teams, communication internally and across organizations, and how to expedite site selection. Once again, Linda walks us through things from the sponsor or clinical research organization or CRO perspective. If anyone's not sure, pick up the phone or send an email because the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And sometimes if we don't know that you're struggling, then we can't do anything about it. And Julie provides her thoughts from the site's perspective. A lot of this is organizational culture, that this has to be something that's that's absolutely insisted upon in your organization from the start. If you haven't started at part one, we highly recommend you start there. That episode provides some important information on site selection and the foundation for some of the recommendations and tips Linda and Julie provide in this episode. To reintroduce our guests, Linda is the Vice President of Clinical Development at Global. She's been leading site selection and evaluation from the sponsor or CRO side for over two decades. Julie is a clinical research nurse and certified clinical research professional with over a decade of experience conducting clinical trials. All right, let's continue our conversation with Julie and Linda. Linda, Julie, thank you guys for coming back for part two of our site selection podcast. Great to be here. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So what are your tips for working together in building rapport? That's something we talked about a bit in the last episode, having strong rapport and processes that work well together. How can each party help the relationship become a well-oiled machine? I guess I'll start, Jamie. As I mentioned previously in the other episode, working as a team, that is just key, trying to build that relationship, making sure that you're helping one another you know, as one kind of unit almost. If if someone is, you know, not real sure that maybe the site's super busy, well, we would uh, check and, and see, you know, what's going on. Is it just that they've, they've maybe taken on some really high priority uh, studies all of a sudden and, you know, things had to shift a little bit? You know, what can we do to help? Is there anything that we can do that might allow them to get back on track? Or is there anything that we can do to be more patient? Is there any documentation that is outstanding? And it may just take a little bit because certain things are happening at the site. Can we be a little bit more patient? I always say, you know, if 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 anyone's not sure, pick up the phone or send an email because the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And sometimes if we don't know that you're struggling, then we can't do anything about it you know, things may take along a little bit and then we'll find out, oh my goodness, this is happening and the site's a little bit behind. So so make sure that you have a good communication. I think building that team, that teamwork and that relationship, I think is just key for almost anything to be successful. I agree. And for a site, I think it's important early on to complete feasibility questionnaires as soon as possible, get the confidentiality agreement signed in order to get a full protocol, manual procedures, pharmacy manuals, lab manuals, and just really start dissecting the protocol and understanding it more, identify your team, and then introduce that team to the CRO. Make sure they know who's in charge of the contract and the budget and who's in charge of working on the consent and who's going to be the lead coordinator and the backup coordinator. Introduce pharmacy and lab people. And again, keep all that, keep the lines of communication open. When the sponsor has checklists 
and they give you checklists so you can give them what they need right off the bat. That's really important too. Speaking of getting the protocol, picking the dream team and introducing the dream team to the CRO, what makes a great team on the CRO or sponsor side? What are the desirable personality traits of a CRO, if you will, or a CRO's team? From the site's perspective, a dream team. We need someone who can talk about the therapeutic area, whether it's a drug or a device. We need someone who can tell us whether this is being done currently per research or our standard of care. If it's new, this is someone that's very important to the team. We need experienced CRNs who can look at protocols or CRCs who can look at protocols and just start what I do. I jot in the margins. I would say that I'm going to have to upload documents for adjudication. I'm going to have to upload different things to central readers. I'm, I have to have negative 70 or negative 80 freezers. I have to have space for lab kits. So I just tear a protocol apart and write all over the protocol. So I have different things and different considerations. Instantly, if I get a protocol, I send it to my contracts and budget person because she puts on her, her hat, her different hat, and she looks at a protocol and pulls out the different things that she's going to have to bill for. And it's just, it's a team that is different for each study with the more complex, the more team members. And again, if it's 24 seven study, you're going to have to have people on the off hours, but your, yeah, your dream team is really protocol driven. Linda, how about you? What do you think makes a dream team? I have to also say that and it is protocol driven. And then what I'm going to be always looking for is that therapeutic area. We want to know that they've got at least some knowledge in that particular area, some expertise. We're going to be looking that they at least have a PI and possibly some sub-eyes that really have some, some knowledge and expertise in that particular area and, and those that particular patient population. I'm also going to be looking at whether they have enough staff whether the staff has experience in some of these different areas, as well as do they have experience in the, in the phase of the study and, you know, in the type of study, like say a blinded trial, do, you know, they, do they have enough staff to be able to have a blinded team as well as an unblinded team? I'm going to be looking at their equipment and facilities to make sure that they have what they need for the protocol so they could be successful, or is there something that they can probably get very quickly? particular type of machine or refrigerator, or freezer, different things like that, that they might be able to, to acquire within the time frame by the time the, before the study is, is up and going. To, to recap that a little bit, from both of the, the, C, the CRO and the site want to have someone or a team of people who are therapeutic area experts that understand the outcomes, understand the disease processes, understand the clinical population, understand the disease phenotypes all those pieces. You want to know the novelty of the compound or is this compound standard of care? Is this technique standard of care or is it new? And you want to build a team that has highly experienced clinical research staff that have domain expertise. So somebody who understands budgets, somebody understands documentation, somebody who understands statistics, somebody understands facilities even, right? Can we plug another minus 80 into this circuit? Do we, are we going to need to take these samples from the basement to the 11th floor with liquid nitrogen, are we going to need to have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're getting a little in the weeds there in the hypothetical, but, and then for, of course, in the CRO side, you want to make sure that they have the stuff and the expertise that they need on that note regarding the stuff that they need. Does a sponsor or CRO, do you recommend that they ever step in and supplement 
either the facilities, the equipment or infrastructure or staffing at the site side. Now, Jamie, I've had experience in both of those actually in the past, but typically you have to be very careful about what you can provide to the site. Usually we would rent the equipment and have it delivered to the site. And so that way it could be returned at the end because, you know, just with all the different rules and regulations that we have to abide by, we have to be very careful that it doesn't look like we're incentivizing the site to enroll patients unnecessarily. That makes a lot of sense. But you brought up the 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 cost of a minus 80, a minus 80 centigrade freezer, which is uh, very, they're commonly used in a lot of clinical studies because they store samples at a temperature in which that even nucleic acid won't become degraded over long periods of time. And they're expensive, right? A cheap one's 15 grand. And they require often a 220 or 208 volt circuit, blah, blah, blah. Long story, long story short is there, there could be a site. So say a site is looking at enrolling 20 patients for a rare disease. This, this ticks some of the boxes we discussed in the last episode of it will help the community. It will help them build a center of excellence, say in this hypothetical, they have the patient population, but they don't have any minus 80s on site, right? In that case, you would recommend renting equipment because you don't want to appear as though you are paying the site for anything but their clinical services because that could introduce bias. Linda, what makes a dream team from the CRO side? And Julie, who are your favorite types of people to work with in a CRO? Putting that in context of what we're discussing here, what are your tips for putting together a dream team on the CRO side. I know it's protocol specific, but kind of speaking in broad strokes, who are the people that you don't want to have involved? And Julie, from the site side, when you're interacting with a CRO, what types of people do you like to work with? That's a really good question, Jamie. And what I typically look for are people who can communicate well, even if we're having difficulties, if you can communicate with each other and Thing, they can get things done so much more efficiently. And when you're able to communicate well and work together, no matter how things are going, even if, even if you don't have individuals who have the greatest of personalities, because everyone has different personalities and some people are a little harder to work with than others, but you can still get the job done because we don't have to like each other. We just have to get the job done. A lot of times we like to like each other. And it does help a lot of times to make the the job more efficient and more pleasant uh, whenever everyone's kind of on the same, you know, sheet of music per se. But a lot of people are just so busy and they just want to get the job done. But if we can communicate well and we can help one another and get a great team together, I think then the job becomes just so much easier. I agree that you need therapeutic area experts, but you need people who communicate well, have very positive attitudes more about the can do versus the no, we can't that help break down barriers instead of just focusing on the barriers and the tough times. Those are the people we look for. Positive attitudes oriented towards finding solutions other than perseverating on problems, effective communication. Do you have any stories where a study was saved by positive interactions or deft communication between the CRO and the site, or better yet, on the opposite side, do you have any horror stories to inform us of what not to do? I'm actually, I must have been very fortunate because I don't think I can 
explain a horror story and everything has been pretty positive. It's been tough sometimes to re- meet enrollment goal. We might overestimate our ability and we've had a hard time meeting enrollment goals, but no horror stories. And you know, Jamie, I can probably mirror that as well. And I think it, like Julie said previously, you know, solution oriented, positive, you know, out outlook type of team whenever you have that in place, it really does make it easier to get everything done. And it really does mitigate some of those horror stories. And you might see it coming, but you can probably overcome it just by having those types of personalities on your team. When I hire people, I'm I'm always looking for solution-oriented folks who can communicate well, no matter what the situation is, no matter how difficult things are getting. And so we have to try to, especially from the CRO side, we have to really try to figure out how we can make this work and how we can help the team get to where they need to be and make sure that everything is successful. Absolutely. At some point in time, the CRO and site begin the study selection process, introduce each other to each other's teams and find out that there's a fantastic rapport even before IRB approval and study start. But People change jobs. Sometimes these studies last for five years or even longer. How does the site and or the CRO demonstrate to one another one another that, yes, people may leave, but the people that are going to come in behind them are going to hold the same values, have the same uh, work ethic and integrity and share a common vision? Well, I believe that a lot of this is organizational culture that this has to be something that's that's absolutely insisted upon in your organization from the start and people you hire have to have a very have to understand the organizational culture that you are committed to a study you will finish what you started you will finish strong you'll meet your enrollment goals so i, I do believe that and it's probably driven from top down perhaps but i think it's also just individual professional people at this level this is what we expect to give other people and this is what we expect to receive and i could say that from the cro side as well that's our organizational culture as well here at, at global we do only hire professionals that have those great communication skills and no matter what they're going to remain positive and solution oriented who, you know, no matter what, we can make it work and we can help the site to get to where they need to be as well. And as people change, we do communicate to the site, you know, because it's unfortunate when that happens because everybody likes to keep the team together as long as possible. But like you said, sometimes they're super long and someone may get promoted or something very positive. They may, you know, go out for an extended period because they've had a child or something. So sometimes there's really not much we can do about the team changing. So we will communicate to the site, but then actions speak louder than words. We will show them by doing what we say we're going to do and, and coming through for them. And when that happens, the, they, they are ensured that the trust is, is going to be continued to be built and the relationship will continue in the manner that it was or maybe even better. So, you know, we do build those relationships. I think that is key is building those relationships. So switching gears a little bit. Going back to the site selection project process overall, do you have any tips or best practices for finding clinical sites for a particular study population, say either for a rare disease population or picking clinical sites for a common 
chronic disease phenotype like cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes? Do you have any tips for selecting a list of sites to enter feasibility with either a very narrow clinical study population or a very broad clinical study population? Yep. I actually, whenever I have a very narrow population, I especially reach out to advocacy groups. However, you know, sometimes we can do that even with the broader populations, but typically um, we're going to need to reach out to the advocacy groups uh, because they have uh, the audience of people in that particular therapeutic area or disease state. So they're going to have really good information and they're going to know who's really interested and looking for clinical trials. So we're going to kind of start there and kind of get some landscape information from them, working with them. They get pretty, you know, happy that we're there to kind of work together as a team. And, you know, that as you hear, that's kind of the theme throughout, you know, working together and, and being a team in all aspects just makes things so much easier. And then whenever I'm looking at that broader type of therapeutic area or disease state, I'm going to be really looking actually out, if you go out on the web, you can go to some of the different websites that you can kind of search for the particular disease state or therapeutic area that, you know, what the prevalence is across either the country or the world, depending on, you know, you know if it's a global study or if it's just a U.S.-based study. So you're going to be kind of looking there, starting some of your research there. The CDC has some really good uh, tips and things as well um, on some of the different areas of, of interest. So, you know, we'll look at a lot of different, do our homework by looking at a lot of different websites and talking with people, you know, finding different groups that, that can help us out and kind of help us to gain more information. They may even know, like some of the advocacy groups may be able to point us in a direction that we hadn't even thought about. So they've been instrumental in the past in some of the work that I've done. Do you ever find, or are you ever concerned about bias or hurting the translatability of the findings of the study if you work with a center with expertise in a particular disease state or therapeutic area to state the question more simply are you concerned about working with experts in the field because they're experts in the field and they may have just an elevated standard of care or the facility may not recapitulate accurately a true primary care or specialist care setting you know, that's a really good question to ask. And uh, what we typically do is that's why we usually work with multiple sites. So that way we don't have any one particular site that may kind of bias the pool per se. So we're going to be looking at multiple sites. We don't, we rarely work with just one site, um, you know, on occasion that may happen, but, but very rarely we're just going to work with one site. Julie, from the site perspective, when reviewing a clinical trial, if you're working with a if they're working with a population that is unique or uniquely challenging that your center has experience with that the sponsor may be less experienced with, have you ever found yourself negotiating on inclusion and exclusion criteria or pieces of the protocol during the site selection process? Have you ever found yourself advising the sponsor saying, and, and, and typically in this case, the sponsor should know deeply about the the nuances of the clinical population, but that may not always be the case. If you are working with a suboptimal contractor, the sponsors contracted a suboptimal CRO and they're just trying to get it done. They may not understand the, the nuances. If you ever found yourself working with a CRO trying to say these patients 
are not going to come in at six o'clock in the morning, or these patients cannot tolerate serial blood draws or, or something like that. Have you ever tried to negotiate on that? And do you have any recommendations? That's interesting. Also, I would hope that an investigator would take the lead in something like that. I personally have no experience in anything like that. I mean, we've been able to look at protocols and say that it's going to be hard for people to complete study visits or to have all that blood drawn. And sponsors have come back with protocol amendments, maybe turning a study visit into a, a phone visit. But initiating that from our site and a, a making uh, addendums to the inclusion exclusion criteria, as far as I know, has not happened. And I will say, Jamie, from the I've been on the CRO and the sponsor side, and uh, a lot of times whenever we do get feedback from sites, if I'm on the CRO side, which I am now, we'll provide that to the client or the sponsor just so that they have that information. They may or may not do something with it, but when I was on the sponsor side, almost always we I would definitely take that back and we would take a look at the protocol, see if there was any way we could adjust because actually in the long run, even if it takes you a little bit more time to get things started. In the long run, a lot of times it'll save you because, you know, the enrollment otherwise will suffer or, you know, different items depending on, you know, what is found in the protocol uh, as the sites read through. I definitely have a lot of uh, principal investigators who do give me some feedback um, on the protocol when they've read through it. And I really appreciate that, actually. Well, and I feel like some of this feedback should be driven by nurses, right? Because nurses understand what it is to work with patients to a much greater degree and to a greater level than physicians do or investigators do, right? A, you know, a physician or a PhD level scientist may approach a clinical population thinking X, Y, and Z, but as a nurse, you understand you've been on the front lines. And so you have feedback as to working with this type of population. I think that's important. So from the nurse's perspective, or, you know, the CRC, CRA, talk to the investigator. The investigator should then tell the CRO and the CRO should then tell the site if there's any type of concerns. I have actually experienced uh, when I was on the sponsor side of actually taking the protocol to certain study coordinators we had a relationship with and they would review it for us and say, okay, you know, you might want to adjust here, here, and here because this definitely, like, like you said, it may be too many blood draws for a particular type of you know patient or it's going to be challenging to do because they can't get from one side of the hospital to the other within this time frame that you set out within the schedule of assessment. So that's not going to be feasible for the, it's going to be tough not only on the, on the patients, but it's going to also be tough on the staff. So we've been able to gain a lot of great feedback. And I think when sponsors do that, it's really beneficial because it really helps you when you're writing that protocol to be the most efficient and effective, not only for the subjects or patients, as well as the nursing staff and the, the trial, the trial sites. Great point, Linda. And I think this is a good place to wrap things up for now. Thank you both for taking the time to discuss this topic and share your thoughts. We really appreciate your recommendations and insight. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. If you have any further questions on site selection and evaluation, or would just like to discuss your individual situation with our clinical development team, our door is always open and we are always happy to help. If you or your team would like to get in touch, 
please contact us through our website at www.globalrwc.com. On the website, you can find more information regarding our approach to solving a variety of clinical and regulatory challenges. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a review, or share this with your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app you're listening on. In the meantime, we wish you continued compliance.